Welcome back to the Poker Zoo. Brought to you by Coach Perswadio. Poker coach, I guess that goes without saying. For his own coaching students, friends of his, members of the back room, and anyone else who cares to listen in. Hopefully you learn something from these podcasts, and we would love to hear from you. Comment section under each of the blog posts on the website, perswadio.nl. Or you can call the Poker Zoo hotline, 410-775-6224. So many ways to reach out and touch someone. This week's interview is with uh, Vegas Pro, Ken Cole. I think you'll get a few insights from Persuadio's interview with him. But before we get to that, as some of you know, I used to sing in a semi-professional barbershop quartet. Who knows what semi-professional means, but... To us, it meant we didn't uh, earn a full-time income, just corporate gigs in the Baltimore, Washington area, evenings, weekends, whatever we could drum up to make uh, an extra grand a week or so. But each year, the Orioles invite us back to Camden Yards to sing the national anthem. uh, Several weeks ago, we fulfilled that invite again, and I asked the guys if they might be interested in recording a tag for the poker zoo. They said yes. Here is a tag from a barbershop quartet introducing you to the Poker Zoo. It's the Poker Zoo Well, welcome back to the Poker Zoo. I'm excited to have uh, Ken Cole this week on the on the zoo, and the reason is we're going to hear about something that doesn't get enough coverage for us cash grinders and real uh, poker devotees. He is a Las Vegas professional. He knows all about the games, and he's here to share with us some of the things uh, that we don't normally get to hear about. So, welcome to the podcast, Ken. Thank you. I'm I'm so pleased to have you on, uh, but you know I don't know you too well. The listeners don't know you too well. Do you want to sort of back up and, and tell us a little bit about yourself? Maybe how you got into poker and, and what took you to where you are now? Sure. I uh, guess I got into it initially just like everybody else, where I was watching rounders uh, with some of my friends in high school, and that uh, was our junior senior year, and we started playing our own little games and. Uh, it progressed from there. Um, I grew up in Buffalo, New York, or just south of Buffalo. And uh, ironically, when I turned 21, there was a little poker room that was an exit in between the college and from where I was commuting from. So I would actually be spending more time in the poker room than I was in class. And uh a couple of my professors were cool about it, like my uh, psychology professor. He said, well, just take that as a practical application to lab because uh, I tend to miss a lot of Friday classes because I was playing late on Thursdays. And uh, from those rooms, I got invites to various underground games uh, around the Buffalo area. And then um, after that, uh, when I graduated college, even though a poker room had developed on the American side of the falls, I decided to take my shot and move out to Las Vegas. And that was over 15 years ago. Oh, wow. So you've been doing this a long time. Yeah, I've seen a lot. 
Um, but just to give you a bit of context, when I first moved to Las Vegas, there was no wind, there was no Venetian. Green Valley had just been built. There was no Red Rock or South Point. And uh, the premier games at the Bellagio were still the 1530 and 3060 limit. The only regular no limit you could find was uh, one, two, no cap at Binion's or Golden Nugget. Or uh, the Bellagio would have a $200 min max buy-in with the blinds at 2.5 or their 10.20 no limit game, which is no max. And then you'd have a little Palms game, which was 500 max, and that's where I ended up playing mostly. Other rooms were starting to open, but it was really in its infancy of the poker book. It was about a year after Moneymaker run. And what kind of games did you start playing there? I immediately inserted myself in a 2-5 player pool over at the uh, Palms, and I found that that was the best game for me because, uh, well, for one, the games were fantastic. Uh, Real World was still popular there, and they were still doing a lot of filming. They had several nightclubs on the premises, and ironically, the poker room was located in between the nightclubs and the parking garage. So games are fantastic with a lot of the younger L.A., New York City, Miami money, things of that nature. There were times when my friends and I, we would just buy in on Friday and some of us would get a room, but it was, we were there till Monday morning. <laughs> well, tell us a little bit about the games. I mean, we'll move forward, but what do you remember from the games back in those days that might be of interest or amusing? Wild action. Oh, uh, wow. Nobody at the time was calculated as to what we know today and it was the same as the strategy it was very guys were just buying for three four hundred and go bonkers and then they would reload and reload and you could get by by just playing tight abc and maybe doing a couple big semi bluffs here or there and uh the turnover at the tables because of the traffic allowed you to be able to do so because the market in the in this city hadn't been saturated yet with so many hmm. different poker rooms. Well, things have changed, and I think that's what you're here to talk to me about. Dramatically. Well, one of the other things I want to say is I've been – I never played much online. I never considered myself an online player. Uh, since I moved to Vegas, I had not played online. Uh, I didn't see the point to it. But when Black Friday hit – it was a double-edged sword and it was like you had people who were former online players who were more mechanically perfect than the vast majority of live regs but they lacked the soft skills and they lacked the table etiquette in order to thrive and that's why i believe that their attrition was so high because if you knew how to play as far as your mechanics, they were used to being fine online. But it's that's where I think some of today's problems in mostly Las Vegas, but there are some other spots around the country, I'm sure, that also have the, the problem too of just like the game selection, the micro-edging, and that's something that is more prevalent now than ever. Yeah, and I want to get into that. But tell me the big picture for your poker career, maybe poker as a whole, what what words would you, you use to describe your life as a poker player and life in Vegas? Uh, grinder. Uh, steady. Uh, I haven't been afraid to take shots, but when I missed, I just pick myself back up and I start over again at those smaller stakes. 
And the reason why I say that is because the biggest that I've ever played was up until recently was 1020, no limit. And it always seemed just like a quagmire where am I ever going to get out of this? Uh, I mean, you can make good money because you would always have to try to keep things in perspective of like, and this is the way I thought about it for many years is, Hey, if, if I can go play a game, I love do what I love. And if I don't have to be wearing a monkey suit or sitting in a cubicle, which has been my lifelong goal to avoid doing that, then even if I pick up 300 bucks a day or can average, you know, 200, 300 bucks a day, it's a hell of a lot better than sitting in a cubicle. So in a word, do you love your job still? Yeah, I do. And uh, recently I've started to like it even more due to uh, since my recent academy experience. Okay. Well, tell, tell me a little bit about that because a lot of listeners are poker learners and many of them have actually gone through the Soul for Y training. Sure. Uh, give me your impressions over what it was and how it changed you from your, your previous 14 years of play. It's, and it'll be actually a great segue in the next segment that I want to get into. Cool. Before the academy, I will fully admit to anybody listening that I was a game selecting. I was a full-blown micro-edger, and I had no shame about it because I thought that I had everything else to figure out about the game. And then I realized that I didn't when a good friend of mine, David, I was watching him play a couple times at the same table, and he had just, over the course of a year or two, he had turned himself into a complete nightmare at the table. Hmm. And I realized, like, wow, maybe there's something else about this game. And <laughs> I don't want to be complacent uh, because a good friend of mine once said that if those who don't evolve will decay and uh, the game can pass you by. So uh, him and I were talking, and uh, he had recently gone to the academy, and uh, but he was open about where he wasn't pushing me towards specifically the salt for wide training, but he was just showing me the different advanced sites such as upswing, run at once, and the academy. He liked the fit, and uh, we we're talking about it with Beck. This was in May of 2018, and from that point, even before I was against solvers and i was against the whole concept of people playing gto in a live setting mm -hmm. uh i've been very vocal about that uh to a lot of people where it's just not reasonable and it's worthless in a live setting uh online you were you were making a living so i mean you kind of had an, an empirical argument right well my argument was based off of several factors one was that from my understanding of it and even through parts of the academy when they're using solvers they're talking about playing against a ghost a perfect opponent i'm sorry i just got three bet by a guy with eight six suited because that was his high school football number i'm not playing against ike haxton or fader holtz i'm not playing against bonomo or like the super high level cash game players i'm playing against johnny tourist why am I trying to set my strategy to play against the world's best if I'm playing against, if I'm not playing against them? Mm -hmm. I thought I was leaving too much money on the table. Okay. That was my strategic uh, reasoning. My overall philosophical reasoning was I didn't want, I mean, it's software. You, you can punch in 
any type of data and it'll give you the answer that you're looking for. And I don't really feel like playing a hand a certain way because a computer program gave me permission to do so. I'd rather be able to set my strategy through logic and reason and then have a couple of close friends of mine take a look at it. And if they can give me a valid argument on how to fix it, then I'll consider it. Mm-hmm. So I really did not appreciate the upswing part where like, it's like, all right, here's your preflop pan charts and, you know, go. Um, that's for, well, it's great for marketing, but I really like the Academy's approach of the way I took it was you're going to build your own strategy. They're going to customize, they're going to show you how to customize it to your skill set and your strengths. And they're going to give you the base and the framework to do so. And the goal is to, the way I took it was to become a calculated, loose, aggressive player, a lag, but you know what you're doing, a smart lag. And uh, David was kind enough and had enough faith in me to actually give me some of the basic pre-flop construction of the academy two months before I even went to the three-day academy so that way I could start calibrating early. And I gave him <laughs> exposure. And I liked it. I liked it a lot. I was more even just he, – all he did was, here, all right, here's your pre-flop. Here's your opening size. Go for it. And he trusted that I had enough table time for the instincts of not to get myself in too much trouble. Well, what were some differences for you then? What, what changed uh, between – the can of before and then the can with those those uh, those assumptions. Well, one of the rights I frequently played with about a week after Dave uh, gave me this stuff, he looked at me, he looked, and he said, hey, uh, Kenny, is everything okay at home? You okay? <laughs> he thought I was just spewing. He thought I was already tilted by the time I got to the table. And it was fun. It made playing fun again, where I would look forward to playing. I would look forward to every session, where I'm not sitting down before the academy, I'd be sitting down after 45 minutes. I'd be looking at my phone or figuring out what the hell I was going to do the next day or the rest of the day. Mm-hmm. It made playing fun again. And because we're playing or we're supposed to be playing a much wider range of hands than I would say the rest of the population as a whole. Right. And we're playing them more aggressively. And what I noticed happening was a lot of regs may hesitate may not even want to play with you but because these are the type of guys that are like you know where's the action where's the action you sit down they're like oh shit not that kind of action but the vips uh those types uh however you want to put it they want to play with you because you're not just seeing, sitting there waiting for aces and kings they want to play with action they you know this old adage of give action to get action right and I've had it personally, I know I'm fast forwarding a little bit, but it'll make my point where in September 2018, I was playing against a guy from Macau who was here in Vegas at Aria. And according to my construction, he saw me three bet from the blind, from the uh, small blind with seven, six suit. And I ended up felting uh, two people, but he had front row seats, but he wasn't in the hand. But he looks up at me and his jaw drops and he goes, gamble, gamble. well three months go by and he's back in town in december he's i don't know if you've been to aria but i'm walking up to the podium he's in seat eight all right i'm sorry he's at table eight and he stands up and he points at me yells gamble and he runs over the podium to try to get to my table even though i haven't even sat down yet 
<laughs> That's what the academy training did for me. So it sounds like what you're saying, and I think it's fair, you know, you were collecting your EV before, you're getting a little bored. Yeah. Playing I mean, like, you know. My, one of my, I want to say my lowest point, but when I knew that it had to stop and it made me hound my friend David for a month or two before he finally gave in and he said, all right, fine, I'll help you out. Uh, let's go get a cup of coffee. But the point where I had, I got to do something about this was I had parked at the wind. This was in February, March of 2017. And because I didn't feel I could beat the game or those games weren't high enough EV or however you want to call it, I left the win. I walked over to the Venetian, couldn't find anything there. I ended up playing a two-five game at Caesars, even though my car was still parked at the win. And to me, that was just embarrassing. That was the level I took it to. Where at this point today, I'm at the point where I will only even change seats, low on tables, if due to physical comfort. Now that's, as you said, it is a good segue. I'd like you to, to talk a little bit about the games. I mean, why not play like you did before? Uh, there's the smaller picture and then there's the bigger picture uh, for the health of the game overall. The smaller picture is most people want, I mean, overall, I'll be upfront, we're talking about game selection here. Yeah. I believe that if, let's just say 2-5 is your current game, you shouldn't be that game selective at 2-5. Now, if you're taking a shot at 5-10 or 10-20, yeah, that's a time to be a little bit selective. But if that's your normal game, sit and play and figure it out. Otherwise, because most people have aspirations of playing bigger than what they are currently playing. And if you can't beat those tougher tables, and if your first instinct is to table change or to get a – well, I'll go over the table changing first. Uh, then I actually have a great anecdote for a seat change. Uh, the table change is that once you – most casinos, especially here in Las Vegas, the 510 games are all run with a must-move format. Mm -hmm. So you can't table change from one 510 game to the other. It just – they don't have that structured that way. So people who insist on frequently table changing are stuck in 2-5. Um, second is as you move up, the player pool shrinks. Like if you're at 1-2-1-3, you have an infinite player pool. 2-5, it starts to get a little bit smaller where you get to know a lot of familiar people. 5-10, I can give you the names of 5-10 players from across the country or even other parts of the world that I've played against. And you know each other because... The, and I'm sure as you go up, the player pool shrinks even smaller. With a smaller player pool, you can get a reputation as a hit and runner, as a game selector, and it's you're hurting yourself. So if by insisting on completely table changing, and anytime there might be two or three chops in a row, you're hurting yourself as far as for your progress of moving up in stakes. On top of that, I mean, there has to be some ground where uh, I was talking to several friends about it where, all right, if your first instinct is table change, give it half an hour, give it an hour. It could just be distribution of the cards where everybody's getting dry cards. But if the game is so tight where if you have full house against full house and the pot is less than 50 big blinds when it's 200 big blind cap, yeah, you might, have, you might not even be able to crack that table with a diamond tip crowbar. At that point, you got to get up and look for something else. But don't give up right away because, again, for those, I mean, I'm 
a cash game grinder, but uh, for players that also enjoy playing tournaments, you really can't get a table change in a tournament voluntarily unless they move you. Figure it out. You can't get a seat change in a tournament. Figure it out. And then I want to move over to the seat change where where a lot of times people insist on jockeying for position or try and get position on the action guy or the VIP, however you want to call it. Well, I'll give you a short anecdote, and it should make my point. I was in seat seven playing 5'10 at Aria, and uh, the guy was in seat nine, uh, said VIP, and seat one opens up, and he looks at me and he says, Kenny, you going to take that seat? First of all, I almost felt bad where he had almost been preconditioned to expect people to try to vulture. But I'm not the type, and how can I make my point that I'm not going to for a longer-term look at it? But I look at him, I say, why? I can't check raise you from there. And he laughed, but he got the message that I don't need that position to play against him. I'm not afraid to play against you. He got the message, and, uh, he, and he gave me more action than I could choke down that day. Two weeks later, I'm in the one seat. He sits down the two, and I look at him. I go, why are you always on my left? He laughs, and he ends up buying me dinner, and we're talking for about four hours. After he gets up, he leans over to me, and he says, Kenny, you're welcome to my games anytime, anywhere. And that's what you want to hear. Right. And I under, to my understanding, uh, over the last several months, there was some controversy on social media about like the privatization of games. For sure there has been. This is my take on it, and this is one of the bigger things I want to get out there. I believe the two subjects are directly correlated. Okay. Where, and this is the bigger picture of me against overemphasis of game selection, is the VIPs, however you want to call it, they're not stupid. They got their money somehow, somewhere. They tend to be very successful businessmen or businesswomen, the majority of them. They want to gamble. They want to have fun. They want to enjoy themselves, and they're fully prepared to lose. Now, whether they lose at the poker table or the blackjack table or the baccarat table or wherever, they don't care. They want to have a good time. So as players, we need to give them a reason to walk by the VIP table pit. We need to give them a reason to want to come play with us. And by doing so is by, hey, where do you want to sit, man? And then you sit where you sit. And then you sit there and you play. And you don't only play when they're at the table. I've seen it where people start to spring up, two spots leave, three regs get up from the table because the spots left. And then they wouldn't sit back down until some other people sat down. To me, that's atrocious. It's insulting to like the VIP tubs. And they see it. They're not stupid. You don't want to patronize them. Let me ask you, though, because I think we sort of get your point, and, and you're saying by, by opening up your game, you're improving yourself, and you're also being better for the games as a whole. But, you know, what is the state of Vegas games? Is, are more and more people doing that? Or is this a problem? What? It is a problem. Okay, um, talk about that. I've seen players table change multiple times over the course of a given session, usually every 30 to 40 minutes. I know people personally, but I'm not going to drop any names or throw anybody under the bus. Uh, I've seen players spend more time looking at games or moving from casino to casino over the course of the day 
than actually sitting at a table. I've seen it where if you have a VIP and say in seat five and seat six opens up, there is literally a scramble to seat six. And it's embarrassing. Uh, where they're trying to take every little micro edge they can find. But instead, just get better at the game. Do your homework. Study. Get better and get more confident in your game. So that way you feel like you don't need to have position on said player. The other thing in Vegas, it, it just depends on the season too, where like say, even in the bigger casinos and the bigger poker rooms, like a lot of times there'll be 15, 20 people on the list for a 5-10 game before they call it. Six people might show up. That's one of my bigger pet peeves. It's I call them ghost lists. I don't put my name on a list unless I intend to play in the game. And then another one that's uh, – a little bit annoying is just the, the migrancy of, all right, I'm going to play 5-10, but if the game's not good, then I'm going to go play Omaha. And then, but when the 5-10 game starts looking good again, then I'm going to go back to the 5-10 game. I was like, really, man? So that's a, one of like, just like the bigger issues where people even from out of town see it, where I was actually recently out of Vegas uh, for the better part of nine weeks out of total of the summer. And, I know people from way out of town that they have no interest in playing cash games in Las Vegas because of that culture, because of the edging, because of the vulturing. Uh, and these are guys that I played against them in my trip when I was out of town. Believe me, they have money to burn, but they want to have a good time doing so. So that's a problem that needs to be addressed. And going back to the privatization of games and how they're correlated is said VIP. They don't want to, they want to play when they're going to have a good time. So they want to be able to control the list or who sits down. They don't want a guy sitting there with just waiting for aces and kings. Is this a problem at five ten and ten twenty or above, or is this a, an entire cultural thing in Las Vegas? Two, five, five, ten from what I've seen personally. One, three, it's still one, two and one, three, it's still wide open. Uh, at 10-20, 10-25 and higher, I would guess that because the player pools have become so narrow that it's a little bit more understood. Um, I want to work my way up a little bit. Sure. I mean, if if you're a 1-2 player or a 1-3 player or you're just moving into 2-5 games, I mean, sure. if you go down to Vegas, are you going to have a good time in a cash game or should you just stay home? You should. You should, you should have a blast. Um, those are, you have a lot wider range of options. We're really the only two, five games that go regularly are at Red Rock on Friday night for uh, that's West of the Friday Saturday. That's West of the strip, Bellagio, Aria, Venetian, Wynn, and maybe Caesars. That's it. All the other rooms say MGM, Mandalay Bay, Plant Hollywood, uh, Harris, they all spread the one-two, and you also still have the one-two no cap over at uh, the Golden Nugget. So if you're coming into town and you, you know, you don't want to be treated like, you know, one of these tourists, which where do you recommend you go? Where are the where does someone go for a good time as a poker player these days? Where are people taking on a little bit of this spirit of giving a little bit of action in order to get action? Or is that just you? That's just me because I guess I see it repeatedly over and over again. Some people don't care where a lot of times people play where they stay and other people just don't care about it. But I, it's starting to alarm me personally because I see it as affecting 
where, especially in Vegas, we are completely reliant upon outside money coming in every day, every week, by plane, by bus, by however. And if that money stops coming because they don't want to play, then it can become a pretty shitty scenario. Now, poker rooms have shut down over the last 10 years. One by one, there's less and less, right? Oh, yeah. Now, is there a connection between that, or is that just in what you're talking about, or is this just a no. bigger? No, that's just oversaturation of the market. Okay. So you don't think that the poker players of Las Vegas could, could maybe make it a more fun experience and keep these rooms going? They could, but it would take a lot of time, and... I believe that the rooms closing had more to do with oversaturation in the market. Okay. The other thing is that, like, I mean, Vegas is slammed in the poker rooms, say, during the World Series. Right. March Madness. Okay. Those, those cash games are incredible. Uh, the week of the Super Bowl, and generally Thursday through Monday during football season. Um, next time you're in Vegas, take a look at the poker room you're in. See how close the sports book is. That's why during football season, which we are right now, every Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, the games are fantastic. Uh, comparatively to, say, Tuesday or Wednesday. So there are def definitely times that are better to come out to Vegas than not. But to directly answer your question, it's just where do you feel more comfortable with? Because, like, and for your game, like, if you're going out there to play one, two, one, three, are you comfortable with the deep buying? Are you more comfortable with just 100 bigs in front of you? The, even the structures wildly change. Like the 510 at the Bellagio is 1,500 max. The 25 at the Bellagio is 500 max. And the 13 at the Bellagio is 300 max. You can also find a 510 with a no max game. You can find a 510 with a 3,000 max game. You can find a 25 with a 1,500 or a 1K max. So it also depends on the individual player. Are you more comfortable playing deeper or are you more comfortable playing a 100 big blind with a polarized preflop. For sure, good good recommendations. Now you're playing these days, what, what is your stake generally? Uh, two five and five ten. Uh, when the five ten's not going, I'll play two five. And which, which venue's yours really? You know, talk about uh, well, where you'd like to play and, and about the players a bit. I keep my box at Aria. Okay. Uh, it's center strip. Uh, it gives me flexibility, uh, so that way if I want to, say, do a change-up and go to Bellagio or Caesars, it's a 10-minute walk where I don't have to move my car or uh, take the tram. And uh, also during, say, busy seasons, uh, like March Madness or during the summer, Plant Hollywood is right across the street from Mario, and that 2-5 game, no cap, when that goes, it's incredible. And same as the 2-5 uh, no cap over at MGM. If they had that game every day, I would probably be there almost every day. But Ari is my home base. I consider it my home base. And generally, they'll get PLO up to 5-5 five, five with a rock every day. Uh, when it's busier season, they'll play a lot bigger. You play mix there, both 4-8 and even up to 20-40 before you start getting into black chip games. And uh, the... Uh, no limit is one three two five, and the five ten is three thousand max. And on occasion, they'll do a five ten twenty or ten twenty, and those are no cap. 
you know, you mentioned a funny story to begin with, someone thinking you weren't well because you had started opening a bit wider. Yeah. <clears throat> People seem to know you. Uh, talk about being a poker player. I mean, do you have other poker friends? Is there a lot of camaraderie in the rooms? Are you all out to get each other? What is it like being a pro in such a special environment? It's like, it's, it's, you really have to understand the difference between acquaintances and friends. Hmm. I had to learn that early in my career in Vegas, where acquaintances, they'll, I can go out to dinner with them, go out to lunch with them, have a few beers with them, but that's where it stays and that's where it ends. I'm friendly with them, I'm professional with them, but you draw the line where it's just business, where it's no different than, say, a coworker at a traditional job. And several guys out here I've known for since the week I got here, uh, a couple of them are still around. The attrition rate there is incredible as well, overall. It's, it's nice to see familiarity, and you get to know these people as people. And so it makes table talk pretty entertaining. But there's also, you become identified by the room. So if somebody walks in, oh, that guy's a win reg, or he plays 2-5 at the win all the time, you almost become identified by the room you most frequent in the state level that you play. To me, I don't care about it, but it's, I find it ironic, or I don't know what the word would be, but uh, even just this past Saturday, I was playing 510 at Aria for, I'd say about six, seven hours. I took a break, went to have dinner, and found out that uh, two friends of mine were in town that I hadn't seen in a while, and they were going to play 1-3, so I sat, played 1-3 with them at the table, and this is the same day that I played 510 over there, and some of the guys that were playing 2-5 at R, they were looking at me like, what happened? What happened? I don't care. I'm sitting here playing with some friends. What's up? So that's one of the things of the culture out here where you become identified by not only the room you play at, but also the stakes you play, uh, where to me it's like, do you play cards or not? Um, there's a difference. And I don't think people should really be identified, except that may might give you a clue on the game structure that they're used to. Like the win, they run a much deeper structure than most of the other game, than most of the other rooms. Uh, Bellagio up to five ten tends to run a lot shallower structures than a lot than a lot of people than the other room in town. Mm -hmm. Now you sort of them maybe didn't just imply it. you explain how a lot of players really are just there to collect from tourists and vips which right. sort of sort of implies that there's that the competition between regs isn't too intense but maybe you could speak to that more precisely how cutthroat is your relationship with other regs in terms of strategy and trying to outplay them yeah i mean i'll speak of my relation i'll speak of my approach to it and my approach is at the table, there are no friends at the table. If somebody sits at the table, I'll, I'm gonna try to bust them, I don't care. But if it's a friend of mine, it's not personal, it's business. Uh, we'll go have a beer after, and if I bust you, I'll buy the beer. If you bust me, you buy the beer. But it's, uh, it's not personal, it's, and again, this isn't culinary class. We're not making waffles or pancakes, or the, we're, the object of the game is to take care of people's money. <laughs> And uh, it's not personal. And I'm, I've done it myself where I've sat there talking and a guy I've known for several years and we're sitting there and all of a sudden we get an all in pot heads up. I take it down. It's not personal. The next day he says, Hey, Kenny, how are you doing? And, like nothing happened. 
it's it's business it's just how it is but the camaraderie i guess would be to pass the time in between hands because live poker even with the aggressive style that the academy preaches is a lot of times it's still boring where you, you can have like you know it's very it's it like you can it's you know five seconds of thrill compared to 55 seconds of boredom for every minute you're there at the table yeah there's no escaping that because of distribution so at least with the camaraderie it's like uh all right i'll give one name uh this guy steve that i've known for years like over a decade uh well he's got a couple dogs and so i'll be asking him yeah how are the dogs doing you go hiking next or or he'll ask me you know how's my kid or how's my my family doing and it, it's just superficial friendly table talk or hey what's going on lately or this or that it's nothing i guess more than superficial when we're at the table all right i mean it sounds healthy enough um that's good but you know there's also you know there's for every friendly moment and, and big pot there's also some downsides and I'm, I'm wondering about the liquidity situation of poker players uh, how do they? How are they doing? The professionals like yourself down there, and you know when they do bust, you know how do they get their get back on their feet? Is, is you know speak to how money transfers a little bit in Vegas. Uh, well, I can only speak from my personal uh, experience. I've come close to busting a few times, but what I did was I just dropped down in stakes and I increased the hours to the point where it was nauseating uh and i played a much tighter to the vest style because i was in rebuilding mode and then when i was ready to take my shots again i'd do it and if i fail i'd try to keep enough so that way i don't have to move down one stake and then what i've done too is recently is i've just made sure that i'm if not if anything i'm overcapitalized for the games i'm playing in so that way it doesn't affect especially because i'm playing a much more volatile style uh, as far as for other players, I've seen them get part-time dealing jobs. I've seen them try to go on stake. I've never been staked. I've never, I've always had a hundred percent myself. And, uh, so a lot of that stuff, I really can't speculate on, uh, any degree of accuracy or knowledge. Now, is that a personal choice or do you have some feeling against staking or what's the deal there? Both. It's like at least if guys are being staked at the table, I don't care. But if, if I have three guys at the same table that are being staked by the same person, I would like to know about it. Uh, especially if the money is starting to get deeper, like five, 10, 10, 20, 10 and a quarter, something along those lines. As far as for my personal choice of never being staked or getting into that program is it's on me. I'm taking responsibility for my actions. And if I screw up, I'm for a while, while I was single, I'll be the one who suffered. And then I only have to answer myself. If I have to answer other people, then all of a sudden, like, you know, I mean, if you're, if you have to report to your backers or give them updates or whatever, I mean, how is that different than a board meeting as to? But um, as far as for what other people and for their reasons, their motivations, that's that's not my call and i don't know enough about this subject to speak intelligently on it i have fair fair enough and i don't want to speculate on it because i (laughs) i've never been involved with it okay Um, but as far as for my money management i've had a strict 
money management system to attempt to keep from going broke while still maintaining flexibility. Uh, where I always have X amount of buy-ins for my current stake. I have extra room that I'll, when I'm putting in to take shots at higher levels. And I have protocols in place for when do I have to drop down in a level. Uh, because in the end, it's not about pride or ego. And that's what I was trying to, I guess, allude at before. When you are identified by the room you're playing in or by what stake you're playing in. Because in the end, it's not about pride or ego. It's about money. I believe they said that in rounders even like from way before, but it's say what you want, but it's true. We're playing for money as cash game grinders. And if you feel like you can have a better return sitting in a one, three game at this spot than a two, five game at our spot, go where the money is, go get it. So I've never had issues as far as having to drop down in stakes uh, when my bankroll couldn't afford it. Uh, there were spots where I literally had to budget to where I was living on $40 a week for food. I mean, there were some rough spots, don't get me wrong, but I have never had to go on steak. And for that, I'm very thankful. Very good. Uh, two, two things. One of them that strikes me is you're responsible for yourself. You mentioned, you hinted that you have a partner or a significant other. What about your outside life, healthcare? recreation how does all this work as a professional poker player in vegas well for one i got lucky where uh my wife has a job regular job so once we got married i was put on her health insurance which really helps and you also have to maintain a sense of balance where so that way every session a win or a loss isn't magnified to where that's all that matters in the world otherwise you're going to get severe burnout uh, people talk about balance as far as at the table and away from the table. It's just, you got to keep things in perspective. And so once I got married, we have set days for family day. Uh, when my son was born, uh, we have a routine where every single morning I'm getting up and I'm watching cartoons with him and having breakfast with him. And I do that on purpose. So that way he knows that no matter where I am or what I'm doing, what time I get home from at night that the next morning he's going to see me and he has that predictability. Uh, and it's a safety net for him as far as for health too. Uh, poker is a very sedentary lifestyle. It really is. And the food, I don't care what you're eating. 95% of it's atrocious, uh, long-term. So, I mean, the other day I had, Plus a pizza and I had a burger with some fries over the course of a day. Not really healthy stuff, but uh, you know, it's in a pinch it works. But so you have to keep your health, uh, even call preventative maintenance. But some people like to do the old gym routine as far as lifting a whole bunch of weights. And I'm sorry, I'm 38 now. I don't need to be the whole meathead bulky stuff. So I just do a lot of body weight stuff and a lot of cardio. Uh, just for, cause I'm looking at just to keep my long-term health. I don't need to bench 8,000 pounds or whatever, you know, I'm looking for more functional. Health. Sure. <laughs> well, speaking of function. Yeah, but it's, it's very important too, because it also, one thing I've noticed is during my workouts, it lets you blow off steam, uh, lets you get, take that edge off, uh, so that way you're less stressed at the table. And when we moved out of the 
city of Vegas where we're out, we're in the outskirts right now. I enjoyed that because then as I'm driving into the strip and then driving home, it gives me a chance to focus from being a husband and being a father to, all right, now I'm playing poker. And then when, so I can be focused for the game. And then when I'm driving home, I can put whatever happened that day behind me. And when I walk in, I'm dad or I'm the husband and I'm not still thinking about five hands from two hours ago. It gives mm-hmm. me a chance to decompress a little bit. For sure. Well, now that begs the question in a sense, what's the future then for you? Is this, is this do you do this until you can't or what, what's, how long does this happen? I'm 38 right now, or I'll be 38 this month. I've been out here 15 years plus. I still enjoy it. I still love it. I'm still making money from it. I'm I'm happy where I'm at, and uh, I'm also looking to move up a little bit as well. So we'll see where it takes it. But right now, that's kind of an – I hate to say it, but in reality, I don't know. I mean, I'm for the time being, I enjoy it. Uh, for the next year – for the next five years, 10 years, I still enjoy it. But I also see that there's spots where like, if my kid is, he gets over, he says, Hey dad, do you want to go to the beach this weekend? Sure. We'll go out to California. Uh, it's all cats in the cradle type thing. But as far as for playing poker, it's something that I'll always enjoy. I mean, I truly love the game because it's a battle of wits and it tests everything about it. And one thing that I, a friend of mine told me before I moved out here, a friend of mine uh, from Buffalo, he told me one thing that still stays true today is the first hour at the table, you'll find, you'll see who the guy wants to be. Four hours later, you'll see who he really is. <laughs> now, he was alluding probably to game, uh, decision fatigue or something along those lines, but it's still, I, four hours later, six hours later, 10 hours later, I still enjoy playing. And uh, I still love playing the game. And until that fire burns out, I'm probably going to continue to do so. And to the Academy's credit is I was actually getting pretty decent burnout before I even went to the Academy, but that kind of lit another fire under me. Brings out some of your competitiveness, it seems. Oh, yeah. I've had a pretty competitive life a lot of times. I, you know, I was a walk-on for college football team. I did... uh, Muay Thai kickboxing and Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu before it was cool to do so. And uh, it was, I've always had that lifestyle. So uh, I enjoy it, but I also enjoy the mental part of the game as well. Um, And one of my bigger challenges lately is not leveling myself at the table like he thinks, I think, he thinks, I think, where it's just, just played straight. Is that something you used to do or what? Yeah, before before the academy, I had over 20,000 hours of live table experience. That So one of my strengths when I went in was, I felt was live reads at the table. They call it the soft skills, call it the intangibles, however you want to put it. But what the academy did was it gave me the construction and the default. So that way, if I decide to go on a road trip, my family or whatever the situation occurs, if you have a default or a base to fall back on, if you're sitting at a table with eight or nine unknowns 
And then once those reads develop, then you can deviate accordingly. So you've got a strategy now, uh, but others do too. And they say, although I don't entirely believe them, that poker is always getting harder and someone's always the chicken little saying it's going to end. What, what do you see after 20,000 hours and an optimistic attitude? What, you know, where is the game heading, at least in Vegas? It's getting tougher. Uh, to play professionally, it's getting a lot tougher. All right, you take the whole population of people that have said, uh, hey, they've tried playing poker even at the kitchen table with family. Then, all right, who's even purchased a book or read a basic book? Then after that, who has actually been able to apply it? Then who has actually then become complacent or thought that there might be something more to the game, I might need some more advanced training? So you take a look at the advanced training marketplace, which the academy is one of that. So then of the people that even go to those advanced training, of that marketplace, who can actually properly calibrate it, those are the ones that are going to be succeeding in the future, where the people that are still stuck either being complacent, I believe that game will pass them by, and the people who are not properly calibrated will actually be the easiest money at the table. Good warning for you out there. Um, what, what other things might you say to listeners in terms of strategy playing in Las Vegas? Anything else you want to share? As far as for vacation, as far as those thinking of moving out here? Uh, let's focus on uh, those thinking of moving out there, let's say. First off, keep your bankroll and your personal money separate. Have a bankroll management strategy set before you even come out. And even better, the more money you can set aside for living expenses, say three months living expenses, six months living expenses, that's even better because then for three, six months, you're not under tremendous pressure to try to make ends meet when you're still trying to figure out where, where the hell are you in the city. Another thing is understand that if they move out here, you live here now. So don't be going out five, six nights a week. Don't be recklessly spending a lot in the clubs, going out to bars and all the other traps that the city has to offer and then some. Stay focused and know what you came out here for. Know your purpose. It even goes back to Black Friday where it's like a lot of those guys that came out here after Black Friday, mechanically, they were a hell of a lot better than a lot of the live regs out here. I'll give them that. But it was the first time that a lot of them may have even been away from home. Uh, they come to this brand new city and it wasn't the poker that got them. They were very good at poker. It was the sports betting. It was the pit. It was the strip clubs. It was the drugs. It was the partying. It was the gambling. It was everything else. They didn't know how to handle it. Well, you sound very grounded and dare I say normal. <laughs> I, well, I mean, it's, that's one of the reasons why I, we moved out to like the outskirts where, I mean, we're uh, last night I was after the Saints kicked that field goal. I mean, we took uh, our kid to uh, the park for like half an hour just so he could run around. I mean, where we live, it's like, uh, it's where a lot of people outside of Las Vegas could be considered normal. Like you have post office, you have the grocery store, you have the parks, you have everything like that. If you live in close to the city or in like those towers, unless you have extreme discipline, it's really easy to get caught up. And the problem is, is like, if you try to exert so much discipline, eventually a lot of people will crack and they'll just go bonkers instead. It's like the 
it's like the high school valedictorian that fails out first semester of college because it's their first semester of freedom away from their family, away from helicopter parents. And they just, eventually they just crack and go bonkers. Well, that is something to avoid. And you've heard some very good advice from Ken today. I, I want to thank him uh, for coming on. I really appreciate him sharing all these rather sage words for those of you uh, dreaming of going out to Vegas. Anything else you want to share with us today? Yeah. Uh, the whole thing, too, is that it's like a lot of it has been mixed signals as far as gloom, as far as negativity, as far as it's tough. It's also very rewarding. When the games are good, they're fantastic. If you want to take a weekend off or if you want to take some time, the California beaches are a four-hour drive, three-hour drive. It's an hour flight. Um, if you come out here and let's just say you want to go see family, Las Vegas is an international hub for an airport, so you can pretty much be anywhere. You can get catch a flight to anywhere. The cost of living is a lot cheaper, and uh, there's no state taxes either. So it's like, it's. I guess the whole thing is it's an adjustment. You're not in Kansas anymore, but if you know what you're doing, if you've done your homework, if you've done your studying, and if you stay focused, take a shot. See what it is. And... Uh, when I was recommending the three to six months living expenses is then after three months, after six months, you're saying, man, I don't know about this place. You have the, uh, you're leaving yourself an out to go another direction. Well put. And it sounds like the dream is alive. Uh, well, thank you, Ken. I really appreciate your time. And I want to wish you continued good fortune in the games. Thank you. And thank you for having me. All right, cool. I will sign off for the zoo. I'll talk to you all next week. And that wraps up another episode of the Poker Zoo. Thank you for tuning in once again. You can find us at persuadio.nl or simply do a search for Poker Zoo. Pretty sure that .nl has Google completely blocking us from poker podcast listings. So if you work for Google, please release that ban on Persuadio. We would love to hear from you. There's a place for comments under each of the blog posts, under each of the episodes. Tell us what you like, what you don't like, what you'd like to hear more of. Uh, fewer barbershop quartets, more barbecue. We welcome your feedback. Speaking of barbecue, we went to KCBS Judging School last weekend. We are officially a barbecue judge. Look out. <laughs> Have a good week. We'll see you next time.